Welcome to the first episode of Halftime Heroes, a podcast uncovering how a couple hundred band kids have wowed millions and redefined what a marching band looks like as they captivate those who watch them. As the Ohio University Marching 110 approaches its centennial anniversary since the original founding of the OU Marching Band, it continues to create dynamic routines full of dancing and high-stepping, all the while preserving the rich tradition that's colored the band's history. It's a warm September evening in Athens, when students, family, alumni, and fans gather in Peden Stadium, buzzing with early fall energy for the all-American tradition of fall football games. But in Athens, football is hardly half of the draw, and as over 200 students donning stately black and white uniforms, shining polished shoes, and green and white feathered caps and capes shuffle out of the metal bleachers and down to the field, everyone knows they're about to witness the real show. The band members proudly don their instruments, stepping in perfect unison as they shift and morph into breathtaking patterns on the field. Playing peppy renditions of modern songs, they drive their knees, twisting and dancing with a vigor that leaves even spectators out of breath. As a routine full of dancing, high-stepping, twisting, bending, and even jumping comes to a close, spectators roar as the performance ends. And as they march off the field, the stands clear as gamegoers leave. The halftime fan favorite performance is over. While at many Division I schools, the football players are student body superstars, at Ohio University, members of the marching band, the Marching 110, often find more fame. With a rather consistently mid-tier football program, what often draws students to the games is the Marching 110's lively and engaging performances, far from traditional marching band stiffness. With the band performing at Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades, NFL football games, parades all over the country, and even internationally, people from all over recognize the 110. So why is a marching band from a school in the corner of Southeast Ohio so renowned? What keeps hundreds of alumni coming back every fall for homecoming performances, and those who were in the band 40 years ago still talking about it? I set out to figure out who the 110 is and how it arrived at its current fame, hearing the stories and experiences of some of the many people who contributed along the way with hours of tireless work and fun. <laughs> The origins of the 110 date back to 100 years ago, in 1923. An OU student, Homer Baird, decided the university needed its own marching band and jumped into organizing it. Baird gathered around 40 musicians in Ewing Hall, enlisting the help of local instrument teacher Raymond Connett to direct, and the OU marching band was born. With the little money the group was able to raise, they purchased 30 blue coats and white caps. Members were responsible for buying their own trousers, during the 1923 football season, enough money was raised to send a small band to a game versus the team's biggest rival, Ohio Wesleyan. After the game, rival fans supposedly said OUMB was one of the best bands they had seen that year. Records of band leadership are vague after 1924, 
but the OUMB was led by Curtis Jansen, Dan Martino, and Charles Gilbert, who led the band in 1950 when it was all female, as a result of most of the men being at war. In 1952, Charles Minnelli became the director of the OUMB through 1966, when the big shift came that would redefine the Marching 110 as we know it. Enter Jean Thrickill. Thrickill had a new vision for the OUMB, changing everything from the name to the marching style. Thrickill renamed the band the 100 Marching Men of Ohio, reminiscent of the University of Michigan's Marching Men of Michigan. In 1968, the band's membership increased to 110, and the name would change to the 110 Marching Men of Ohio, as it's known today. The 110's current assistant director, Josh Boyer, talked more about where Thrickill's changes originated when we spoke about the band. And so he and the athletic director at the time, and this is right when the convocation was being built, right at the convocation center, and they had the idea that the Ohio University was, was maybe someday could become a, a Big Ten school. And so um, with that, they wanted the marching man to, to evolve into that look and style. So Gene Thralka, who was a, a, a member at the University of Michigan, then kind of brought that look of the Michigan band to Ohio University and the marching style. So the high step, extended chair step marching style that we have today and the uniform with the Ohio and the cape and the look um, is all kind of uh, adapted from the University of Michigan, right? In addition to eliminating the Ivy League suit uniform for a more showy, almost military looking uniform with clean black and white lines, stately plumed caps, and green and white capes, Thrickill implemented what has been described as a violent marching style with distinctive high steps, dance breaks, and new formations on the field. Thurkill also made the highly controversial decision to eliminate women from the band, and they wouldn't make their return until 1975. However, the controversy seemed to be forgotten when the one time gave their first performance as a redesigned OU band. That was the sound of the revised band's debut performance under Thrakehill in 1967. The performance featured the new showy military-style uniforms, high-stepping choreography, including a new Diamond Ohio formation that's now well-recognized, and the modern version of the Ohio fight song, Stand Up and Cheer, debuted. Percussion players in front sway back and forth, swinging their arms dramatically above their heads before striking their drums. Trombone and trumpet players whip their instruments from left to right in synchrony as they bend and turn, shifting into a kaleidoscope of formations with deceptive ease. Thrakill's vision for the 110 made a distinct shift towards the show band world that characterizes the band's fame today. To break it down, there are several types of marching band styles that exist. Broadly, they can be divided into just a few, according to Boyer, core and show bands. I'll attempt to break them down in simple terms, coming from someone who's not experienced in band myself. Both styles originate from military band tradition, which is characterized by strict linear formations, consistent tempo, and solid musical technique playing traditional and often patriotic tunes. Not many college bands maintain a strictly military style nowadays, except the U.S. military academies and some others, most notably Texas A&M. One evolution of traditional marching is the core style, which strays a bit more creatively from military style, but still holds some traditions close. Core bands maintain similar marching style, though music and choreography are not quite as strict as military bands. A show may contain jazzier music with varied tempo and intensity, 
and many core bands even incorporate dancing and props. There are very much more in the massive production aspect of, of marching band. I mean, they, those kind of programs will have electronics and a pit, or, a pit you know, percussion pit, and they're going to have props and all kinds of different things that add to this production value that they go and they compete against other high school bands, and they get scored, and they rank, and they can win you know, local or national championships that way. A significant characteristic with core bands is they frequently play the same show with little to no variation when they perform or compete. And the other category, show band world, you'll find the marching 110. Show bands incorporate some traditional marching elements with some contemporary entertainment value, mixing old and new tunes, traditional lines with wild and creative formations. This often demands a lot of band members to pull off choreography. The goal of show bands is to entertain an audience, and that often means introducing a new production every performance, like the 110 does. One prominent style of show band is seen at historically black colleges and universities. The style has a distinctive high step and includes more R&B, hip-hop, and popular contemporary music. These bands often have heavily choreographed dance routines included in their performances. Some popular HBCU show bands include the Blue and Gold Marching Machine of North Carolina A&T State University and Florida A&M University's Marching 100. A second branch of show band inspiring the 110 is seen in the Big Ten Conference bands, like those at Ohio State University and University of Michigan. This variation is semi-military, semi-core, playing some traditional symphonic styles as well as contemporary music. It's the 110's enthusiasm in its high-stepping, dancing, and rolling style that draws the crowd in, unable to take their eyes off the action. And it can't help but draw the members in, too. 110 alumnus Christopher Olhorn remembers the first time he saw the band vividly. The Cincinnati native started playing the trumpet around age six, a skill he would later put to use in college. My older sister was in, she went to OU, so I went up there for for six weekends, 1986, and I saw the band play they did a halftime show with the basketball game. I was like, boomed away. I was like, oh my God, this is so much fun. Because my band was military when I was in high school. This was completely different. And I was like, I wanted to be part of that band. So that's why I went there. In the next year, Olhorn, as his friends and bandmates knew him, auditioned for the 110 and was accepted. From 1987 to 1991, he played trumpet and marched, an experience he was so excited to share even years later that he enthusiastically called me twice in the middle of the night. But Olhorn is not the only student drawn to OU to be in the Marching 110. Aaron Romero marched alongside Olhorn from 1986 to 1991 in the percussion section. Also like Olhorn, he started playing the trumpet when he was young, but joked that he ran into trouble with braces and switched to percussion in the eighth grade. However, unlike Olhorn, Aaron always knew he wanted to be in the 110. Like many band members, he was inspired by family who participated in the band before him, with a brother and a brother-in-law marching in the 70s and early 80s. To be wanting to be in the 110 was the reason that I wanted to come here. Once I got a hold of my brother's 1976 Live from New York band album, that was, you know, and this is back in the day where, I mean, we used to take multiple, multiple moments in time studying album covers over and over again and just listening to that. And then I eventually acquired more albums and just, I mean, just studied them ever so intensely. Yeah, I mean, I was such a band, 110 band geek that I used to drive from Chillicothe to Athens just so I could watch a practice. And of course it would be dark and I couldn't see a thing. 
because I'd be too chicken to actually get out of my car <laughs> from the combo parking lot. And I would just sit there and absorb the atmosphere. Ohorn and Romero began marching under director Ronald Saccarelli, the ninth director of the band serving from 1973 to 1989, and ended during the beginning of director Sylvester Young's tenure. Under Saccarelli, women were accepted back into the band in 1975, and in 1976, the 110 became the first marching band to perform at Carnegie Hall in New York. Yeah, he was... <laughs> He was a very, very unique individual. I've never met anyone like him. He just, he just oozed a personality. He was this crazy Italian. He had the, and he talked, he talked like he was a late 1950s, early 1960s beatnik. And everyone who marched under him had a Mr. Saccarelli impression. So whenever he would say something, you would, if you were quoting him, you always did it in his voice. And he was just this little guy, but he was just this ball of fire and he it was it was his band and you didn't you didn't argue that it was his band and and he he didn't take any shit from anybody i remember uh, up in toledo we were doing something and some guy was offended and just, just frantic and mr soccer really asked who, who, who you were and he said I'm the assistant director of this, and I do it myself, Mr. Shockerly. Mr. Shockerly says, "I don't deal with assistants, man." He was, he was something, and he, and he, he had that, and to us, he, he had that swing. Um, and you know, and actually, a buddy of mine and I, we were talking about that, how we used to get so excited when he was really into it, and he'd get that, he'd get his hip, he'd get his hip moving when he was, when he was directing, he, he just had that swing to him. Mm -hmm. You had that, jet, that kind of jazz swing component. Many of the band's directors have served long tenures with the 110. The band's current director, Dr. Richard Sook, is in his 26th year as the band director. Josh Boyer, the assistant director we heard from earlier, says it's one of the things that contributes to the band's success. One of the, the largest components for our success is the tradition, right? I mean, when you have an organization that has had four directors sorry, five directors since 1967. Gene Threlkill, Thomas Lee, Ronald P. Saccarelli, Sylvester Young, Richard Sook. Right? We've had five directors in 50 years. Um, and so 50 plus years now, 50, gosh, 56 years. So um, that continuity is huge as an organization um, for not only the traditions of the band and like, you know, the uniform has been the same since 1967, um, the style, while has evolved slightly, but the general idea of what the band stands for, playing popular music catered towards the student body, performing for the students. We perform our halftime shows towards the students, not towards the press box. Like things like that. Those traditions uh, help broaden that that reach and that that connection with the students, the alumni, the general population. Those things. Tradition. The key word I kept hearing again and again when talking to people about the 110. In different ways, so many people recognize that the band, though evolving, stands for the same things it did 50-some years ago. To students, they see the same enthusiasm, charisma, commitment, and entertainment year after year. To band members, they see the inside of the organization, the quirks and rituals that bond such a large group together. It's a common shared experience mm -hmm. that we've all if we're part of something of two or more people, we have that common, you know, it's just, yes, we have that point of pride with that. 
So it's, you know, we used to kind of, when we would sit around and talk about it, it was kind of like the, the inside joke that no one else gets. And, and if you don't get it, explaining it to you won't help. It's that, it's that you either get it, you either get the joke or you don't get it type thing. Or the other was, you know, I know a secret that you don't know type thing. And as I talked to more alumni and students, I was let in on some of the secret. The language that the band shared, the common experiences. I would hear tales of marching into the Hawking River, berating Miami rivals, marching on top of band jackets, and earning your place as a freshman. But how do you earn a place as one of the 110, or as it now is, closer to 240 members? What does it take to make it in the 110 and to keep the reputation going? It turns out that with power, there is in fact great responsibility. From audition day to the final day of the season, 110 members literally give blood, sweat, and tears to executing astonishing performances. We came in and we're doing the marching and the next morning I was in the shower just having the hot water beat on the backs of my legs because I was so sore. Oh God, it was horrible. I wish that I could explain how sore you are because you're using muscles that you're... (laughs) Your body just doesn't use when you walk around or even when you run or do like any kind of physical activity, you are not using the muscles the way your muscles, the way that they use them um, when you're marching. In college, it's like you're rehearsing for an hour and a half, like every single day. If a game is like at two o'clock on a Saturday, we're out on the field at maybe nine in the morning getting ready. The last battle cry of encouragement was, you know, drive like hell and don't fuck up. next episode on Halftime Heroes, how the band operates and what's expected of its members, both challenging and rewarding. Current members and alumni take me through their time in the band and what it looks like being a member of the 110. Thanks for listening and be sure to jump to episode two as the 110 If you like this podcast, be sure to check us out on social media at Halftime Heroes Podcast for additional content and behind the scenes and share us with your friends. What is 3D printing? How does the technology behind it work? And what do you really need to know to succeed? I'm Andy, and with the First Layer Podcast, we'll go through printing types and history with everyone from hobbyists to armorsmiths for an in-depth look at 3D printing as a whole. Listen to gain the first layer of knowledge to help you succeed with this exciting new technology. Hope you tune in.